Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, yeah, just as Pastor Ben Kai was praying uh, for Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara, which is the church that uh, sent my family out to plant this church, uh, Santa Barbara got hit hard with the rains, and their building, uh, which is, happens to be in a floodplain, uh, flooded pretty bad. Um, pretty much every square inch of their building had water in it, and so they are cutting the drywall up two feet and re-drywalling the whole building after it dries out. They're pulling up all the carpeting and everything, and so um, they've just been having volunteers and skilled laborers around the clock and, uh, and so any way that we can uh, maybe as a sister church come alongside and support them, we want to do that. So um, I'm, I don't have like a date set, but I'm going to maybe try to jump up there this week, maybe at the end of this week, either Tuesday or Friday. But if you're interested in coming up with me, uh, we can just caravan up there and just get some hands on the work and help out. So um, come chat with me if you're interested in something like that. But uh, one other uh, thing I want to announce, as we mentioned last Sunday for the first time, we have our date set to go to Israel. Uh, in 2024, we're going to be in Israel from April 2nd to the 12th, and we'd love to have you join us on this tour. Uh, I'll be uh, teaching along with uh, another pastor from Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, David Guzik, will be uh, teaching as well on that tour, and we're going to have a good time. So see Johnny in, in the uh, cafe there if you want to hear more about Israel or uh, about any, any of these things, the New Believers class, uh, the Foundation of Faith class. And then one other thing is that this next Sunday, we are going to be having baptisms and so a baptism service this next Sunday, I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment, and we're going to want you to sign up uh, because at the nine o'clock service, we're going to just have a, a teaching on baptism, and then at the 11 o'clock service is when we will be doing the baptisms uh, for that day. And so uh, it's exciting. Who's been to a baptism service here? Excellent. Who's been baptized in this church? Yes, look at all these hands. So good. Yes, we're so excited for what God's going to be doing that, that week. If you've been to one of our baptism services, you know that the Holy Spirit moves. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, today we are finishing the second letter that Paul wrote to this church that he planted and just loved them dearly. And we've learned many great lessons from this letter, haven't we? And uh, we've learned so much about the second coming of Christ. Today we're going to, as Pastor Ben said during worship, we're going to learn about a, a warning against idle living. But so many great things for, for us to take away. And, you know, it always does feel like an accomplishment when you come uh, to the end of a book, when you finish a verse-by-verse -verse study. And if, if you're, you're new to Calvary, that's kind of what we do here. If you've been around here for some time, you know that when we... Uh, when we finish a book, what do we do? We start another one. And so uh, in two weeks after the baptism service, we're going to come back and we're going to be starting the book of James on Sunday mornings. And we're going to take that one a little bit slower. I know we went like hyperspeed through Thessalonians, but we're going to go a little slower through the book of James. But in between that, of course, like I said, we're doing our baptism service. And Look, if you haven't made that public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ, which is what baptism is, it's uh, being united with Christ in a death like his and in a resurrection like his. And next Sunday, if you haven't done that, it's the perfect day to do it because Jesus commanded that we would be baptized. And if you have believed in Jesus and you've decided to follow him in your life, then come. 
Come and be baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, there's just nothing quite like it. It's such an experience where you, you tangibly sense the power and the presence of God as you identify with Jesus in your faith. And so, you know, plan ahead. Uh, go sign up. Right now, we don't have any sign-ups for baptism. So if we don't have any sign-ups, then we'll probably just, you know, we, we won't do it. But I, I know there's some people who probably need to get baptized and should be baptized. So go sign up because um, you could plan ahead because, you know, pretty much every time we've done a baptism, there's been those who didn't plan ahead and they went in with their Sunday's best, you know. Who, who got baptized in their jeans in this church? A couple of people, Yeah. So we, um, we want you to sign up for that. And then, like I said, when we come back in two weeks, we'll be in the book of James. But today, let's finish this amazing book of 2 Thessalonians. We'll be looking at all of chapter 3 today. So have your Bible open, and let's jump right in. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the power of the word. Just as Benkai said, it, it is like rain that falls upon the earth, and it doesn't return to you void. And so, God, would you produce life in us? Would you produce growth in us by the things that we would hear today? Would you change us from one degree of glory to another? For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says this, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And so Paul's coming to some concluding instructions here in this chapter. He's already commended the Thessalonians for their endurance in hope as they've been persecuted for their faith in Jesus. He then cleared up some confusion about the day of the Lord because these afflicted believers had been told that they missed the rapture of the church and that they were now living through the time of the great tribulation. And Paul sorted that out. And if you put all that together, what you'll find is some people who are pretty shaken up by the things that they were living through and the things that they were hearing. And Paul is going to, uh, in this last, last section, give them some very practical instructions. You know, how do we live as followers of Jesus in this world? As we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus, we know that he could appear at any moment, and yet how do we live faithfully day by day in the Lord, because what had happened is that there had come some wrong conclusions about how to conduct themselves before Jesus' return. And, and Paul's going to clear that up here in this final section. So he says here in verse 1, finally, brothers, pray for us. So Paul started the letter by saying that he was praying for them. And now he closes the letter by saying, pray for us. Why? Because that's what the family of God does, right? We pray for one another. You know, in God's family, the children of God talk to the Father about one another. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do. And Paul was not one of those people who thought of himself as being so put together, you know, so mature in the Lord, so effective in the gospel that he didn't need prayer. You know, because prayer is for weak people, right? Wrong. <laughs> Are you kidding? Paul lived off of prayer. Prayer never ceased to come forth from Paul's mouth. He made sure to always ask. Also, he he asked other people to be praying for him. You know, in just about every letter that Paul writes, he solicits prayer for himself. And why is that? It's because prayer is powerful. 
So, so if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you quickly learn the power and the importance of prayer in the Christian life. You know, last week I had the opportunity to meet with a young couple who recently came to faith in Jesus, and I, I've been going with them through the Word of God together, and, and I, I asked the husband at the end of our time together if he would pray, you know, close this out in prayer, and he said, oh, whoa, well, I, I've never prayed out loud before, and I said, well, get used to it, <laughs> and I told him, you know, prayer is simply talking to God, and I said, as you start out your prayer life, do, do two things right here. As you're going to pray, first time praying out loud in front of other people for the first time, here's what you should do. You should do two things. Thank God for something and ask God for something. And so he went into it. You know, he closed his eyes and he said, Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time and the word together. And I pray that the seed of God's word would find good soil in my heart because we had just studied the parable of the four soils together. And I guaranteed you that God heard his prayer and will answer that prayer. Because he thanked God for something and he asked God for something. And, and Paul asked these believers in Thessalonica to be praying. And remember that these were new believers. They hadn't been Christians for very long, but they could still pray. You know, you are never too new and young in your faith to know the importance of prayer. And you can never be too seasoned or too old in your faith to realize the value of prayer. We all need prayer. And so, you know what? As the church, we should be asking one, one another for it all the time. And so I'll ask you right now, would you guys pray for me? I know many of you do, but, but I'll ask you, if you're not praying for me, if you're not praying for the elders of this church, if you're not praying for our staff, if you're not praying for this church body, I'm going to ask you right now, would you pray for us? Because prayer is powerful. You know, we're going to learn in the book of James, the next book that we'll go through, that we have not because we ask not. And Let's ask God to do great and mighty things in this church, and prayer is going to be the key that will unlock the amazing things that God will do in our midst. Prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things. It's somewhat of a mystery, and yet it's such a simple thing that we would simply come before God and say, God, would you do what only you can do? We'll, we'll do everything we can do in our own strength and our own power, but, but that's not enough. You need to come through, and you need to work. You know, we, we have a ministry here in this church that we do once a month. It's called The Engine Room. You guys know about that, right? Pastor Rob leads a prayer meeting that happens simultaneous to the service once a month. And, and the idea of this is as the Word of God is being preached, people are praying for the Word of God to speed ahead and to be honored among us. And did you know this, that every single time that we have had The Engine Room, somebody has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Every time. It shows us the importance and the power of prayer. And so it can't be stressed enough, church, let's be praying more and more. Now, what does Paul want the church to be praying for? He wants them to be praying for two things, and he's going to say them here. The first prayer request is in the second half of verse 1. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So Paul asked them to be praying for the word of the Lord to go out and to do the work that the word of God does. 
And Benkai already quoted Isaiah 55 that says, the word of God goes out and does not return to him empty. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active. 1 Peter chapter 1 says the word of God endures forever. Psalm 147 says the word of God runs swiftly. And the Thessalonians knew this because they had experienced it. This had happened among them when Paul came to them declaring the word of God to them. You know, in three Sabbath days, three weekends, Paul was with the Thessalonians preaching the word of God, and it utterly transformed their lives. It's amazing what God can do in one Sunday or two Sundays or three Sundays. You've experienced it, right? Where, Where the word of God being preached with full conviction and with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, that the word of God goes out and it is to be received and honored by the people. And and they experienced this. They saw how Paul came to them still freshly wounded from his beatings in Philippi and how he preached the word of God to them and how the seed of God's word planted within the soil of their hearts and it produced eternal life in them. And Paul said, pray that this happens everywhere. Pray that this happens in our church, that it would speed ahead and that it would be honored. And I believe that it is. I believe that it's happening here. But pray, church, that happens more and more, that the word of God would sound out from this place, that it would have a ripple effect in our world through each and every one of our lives. And so the idea of the word of the Lord speeding ahead has this idea, that it spreads quickly. And the word of God has that power. It has that effect where where it can run out all over the place, transforming lives, where, where a flame can be started in one life and then it'll run like wildfire, spreading to other lives. And so, you know, the word of God has intrinsic power and honor. We don't need to give it honor. We don't need to give it power. It has it within itself. And yet there's a way in which we can pray that it would be honored, and that it would be powerful among us. And that's what Paul is asking them to do. Do you guys remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians about the church's reception of the word of God? I love this verse. It, It tells us really about the word for what it really is. It says, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the word of God ran swiftly through the the Thessalonians, and it was honored because they knew it was not Paul's words, it was God's words that they were hearing, and so he's praying for this to happen. The second thing that Paul asked this church to be praying for is found in verse 2. He says, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. You know, Paul realized that although the word of God is powerful, and that it runs swiftly through cities and through lives, that the word of God often has to run through an obstacle course. When I was a youth pastor, one of the best nights we ever had at youth group is that we made this huge obstacle course. But 
but to make it a little extra challenging for the students to go through, we had one of those automatic tennis ball machines, you know, that you play in tennis practice where you just feed the balls in and it shoots them out. And we, we actually had it, there was a rock wall in the youth room and we had it up high and, and the leaders were like aiming it and the kids were going through the obstacle course with like tables to block the balls and they were getting hit with balls and it was, it was amazing and it was awesome. They had helmets on. My wife's like, you should not tell that story. Uh, but, you know, once a youth pastor, always a youth pastor. We, we don't do that here in this church, but just saying. But sometimes, you know, as a minister of the word of God, it, it, it sometimes feels like you're going through an obstacle course. You know, you've got the obstacles of the world, You've got the temptations of your own flesh, and you've got the fiery darts of the evil one coming at you like fiery tennis balls hitting you from every direction, right? And Paul realized that one of the greatest obstacles that he had as a minister of the gospel is that not all have faith. And the word of God will continue to spread, but not everyone is going to honor it. There are wicked and evil men who do not honor the word and they do not have faith. And you know what? They will attack those who do honor the word and who do have faith. And so both Paul and the Thessalonian believers could remember that mob. You remember that mob that, that when they began to believe in Jesus, they chased Paul out of Thessalonica and then they followed him to Berea as well and chased him out of that city evil and wicked men who hated the work of God and what was happening in these people's lives, Paul prayed that he would be delivered from these kinds of gospel rejectors. You know, if, if Paul could be delivered from a beating or from an imprisonment or, or especially, I think, an attack upon his character, Paul would take it. He would say, Lord, deliver me from this difficulty. Paul could rejoice in suffering, but it doesn't mean that he enjoyed suffering. He prayed that he would be delivered from the plans and the attacks of evil and wicked men, and yet Paul knew that God was the one who was going to be in control of everything, that, it, that God was going to be the one who would deliver him from such obstacles. Now, in verse 3, Paul is not going to stop there and, you know, just get all bummed out about the opposition He's going to continue. He says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So Paul could trust in the faithfulness of the Lord, knowing that God had never failed him. Do you know that, church? Do you know that by experience, that God is faithful and that he has never failed you once? You might think, well, maybe... He has failed me. No, 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 no. The Lord has never failed you. He's faithful. Through every difficulty, through every trial, through every circumstance, God is faithful and he is the deliverer. And he will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. You know, Paul could trust in the faithfulness of the Lord knowing he's got a perfect track record. Now, Paul understood, though, that behind every obstacle that was set against the work of God and the word of God, he knew what was behind that obstacle. He knew who it was. 
that was influencing the wicked and evil men. He knew, what, he knew why it was, because not all have faith. And he knew that every obstacle and every opposition that was working against him came from the evil one. Because the devil is a deceiver, and he hates the work of God. And he steals, and he kills, and he destroys, and he, he seeks to blind people from the knowledge of the truth, because when the knowledge of Jesus shines upon people's lives, their eyes are open to see. And so if he could keep us in the dark, he's going to do everything he can to do that. But not for Christians, not for the church, not for those who have faith, because the Lord is faithful, and he establishes us, and he guards us against the evil one. You know, there is a limit to what the devil can do to a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? There's a limit. If, if you refuse to love the truth and be saved, the devil has free reign. But for those who know Jesus and for those who obey his gospel, you have God's protection. The Lord is faithful Beloved, child of God, he will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. Sometimes we give too much power to the devil. The devil's powerful, don't get me wrong. He's not more powerful than God. We don't believe in dualism, that it's this battle between God and the devil and we're all wondering who's going to win. We know who wins. Do you remember last week in chapter 2? Just by his appearance and the breath of his mouth, he destroys his enemies. We know that God is powerful, and if you're in him, he'll establish you and he will guard you. And then in verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to give now some encouragement to these troubled believers. They're troubled because the devil was attacking them, and people were attacking them, and their own spirits were attacking them. But, but this is the, the thing that Paul says to them, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So look, there were issues going on in the church of Thessalonica that needed some correction. These, these believers needed to hear from their spiritual father, from this apostle Paul, the, the one who had preached the gospel to them. They, they needed to be reminded of the commandments of the Lord, and yet, yet when Paul came to them, yeah, he had some correction. He had some things that he needed to fix among them, but, but he was confident in the Lord about them. One, because God is faithful. <laughs> and that's where almost all the confidence lies, is in God, but, or all of it. But but because not only was God faithful, Paul knew these believers were faithful. That, that they had been doing the things that they had been commanded to do and that, that they had plans to continue in them. You know, I've been recently thinking about this for myself and, and, and for our churches. I've been recently thinking about how for a child of God, there's really only one direction that you can go. And it has to be toward God to try and go any other way, to, to try to walk against the grain, to try to walk away from God is vain. If you have been loved, if you have been called and chosen and saved and sanctified by God, you will be absolutely miserable if you do not walk in faith, hope, and love. You know, our, our hearts can be set only in one direction, and it is toward the love of God. 
So, so why would we try to go any other direction if God has his grip on us and we can never escape his love? We ought to be directed toward the steadfastness of Christ because, look, every other way, every other direction that we try to go apart from going toward Christ, it's faulty, it's slippery, it's unstable, it's chaotic, and like I said, it's miserable. (laughs) I've done it enough times in my life to know that trying to stiff-arm God doesn't work. No, 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 God, I got this. Doesn't work. There's one direction in which you can go if you're a child of God. It's toward him. It's toward him. So may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He is the only one who can establish you and guard you. He is your only refuge. You have to go toward him because otherwise you'll be miserable. Now, unfortunately, not everyone in Thessalonica was heeding these things that Paul had commanded of them when he was with them. And and so Paul's now going to give a warning to those who are trying to go a different direction, a warning about those who are walking in idleness and not according to the traditions that they had received from the apostle Paul. And so when we come into this next section, what I want to do first is I want to give you some background to understand what was going on in Thessalonica. You know, First and Thess- Second Thessalonians talked a lot about the second coming of Jesus, right? And, and, and it's a very important truth, a very important doctrine that we are to believe and that we're to respond to, but there was this issue that arose in the church, not, not because they believed in the second coming of Jesus, but because of how they responded to that belief. See, their future hope of heaven and their future hope of, of God taking the church up in the air, what it did is it, it had a negative influence on their daily practices while they still lived on the earth. You know, it's crazy how we can twist things up like that, you know? There were some who took the fact that Jesus' return is imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. It could happen today. We're one day closer that he could come back at any moment, and they used that truth as an excuse to stop everything that they were doing and to just wait for Jesus to come back, but that is not a proper way to respond to this doctrine. You know, the, the second coming of Jesus calls us as believers to be awake and to be sober-minded and to be ready for his appearing, but, but we're not meant to just stare off in the clouds. Is he, is he there? Is he up there? We're meant to be about our work, working with our hands, being witnesses for Jesus in this lost and dying world. And and so what some believers were doing is that they had become idle. And Paul's going to correct that idle living now in verses 6 through 15. Let's read this whole section. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. 
If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Wow. Well, let's, let's take a, a, the rest of our time here breaking down what this is talking about. In verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. Now, Paul's having a family meeting here. You know a family meeting, right? Not everyone is meant to listen in on a family meeting. It's, it's for the brothers and the sisters in the church. And all of the people that Paul is talking to have come to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about people who have been saved by Jesus, who love him. They believe that Jesus died once for their sins, that he was buried and that he ascended to heaven, and they believe that he's going to come again. And that he's, he's going to save those who know Jesus and obey the gospel, and he's going to judge those who refuse the truth and, and don't want to be saved. And so these are saved people that Paul is talking to. I want us to really know that going into it. These are children of God. This is for the church. This is a family meeting that is being had. He says to the church, keep away from any brother, notice brother, family, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions you receive from us. What's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the command that he gave in his first letter to them when he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, that they were to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Look, he's telling these believers who are obeying that command to keep away from believers who are not obeying that command. Keep away from believers who are idle. Now look, it is clear from Scripture that since we are made in the image of God, we are supposed to work. God is a working God. And, and since he created mankind, mankind is called to work. And, and we've learned this already, church, that work existed before sin entered the world. Sin cursed work, Work is now toilsome, amen? Work is hard sometimes and grueling sometimes, but nonetheless, work is good and it is blessed by God. Yet, there has been and there always will be people who refuse to work. They choose to be idle. And idleness is rooted in laziness. And really, it's a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of our God-given purpose, which is to work. And Paul was a man who worked hard, and the people who worked with him. And that's why Paul could say in verses 7 through 8, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was widely known in the church at Thessalonica that Paul worked as a missionary, that he would travel and plant churches in every city that he went to. But they also knew that Paul and his co-workers also had a side business of making tents. They would 
make and sell tents in order to have income that would support their travels as they ministered the gospel. And, and Paul says, you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. And, and look, if anyone believed in the second coming of Jesus, it was Paul. If anyone knew the importance of getting the word of God out as speedily as possible before that return, it was Paul. And yet Paul worked a job. He worked as a tent maker. He also says, nor did anyone, or did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now we gather from the New Testament that Paul had a right as a preacher of the gospel to make his living by the gospel. In fact, Jesus lived that way. And Paul knew that he could have his ministry funded by the churches that, that he started and, and, and were going, and, and those churches often did support Paul in his ministry. The, the church of Philippi was commended for their support as Paul was a missionary. But there were times when Paul knew that a certain church might be financially burdened if he were to take a salary, you know, from, from a church. And so what Paul would do is he would relieve that burden by laying down that right, and he would choose to instead work. And he would work by making tents. And he wouldn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. And Paul could say, follow my example. I was not a mooch. Do you know what a mooch is? You know, someone who stands around and gleans off of other people's hard work and money and food. Paul says, I will not be idle. I will not be a mooch. I will work. And he did work. With toil and labor, he worked night and day. Now look in verse 9. As, as I already stated, Paul had the right to be paid as a pastor. It says, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul knew that it wasn't wrong to have ministry be a vocation. It was a right, and it's a right that any minister has the freedom to either take up or to lay down as they are led by the Spirit of God in the needs of the church. But you know, I, I think the reason why, because you know, I, I get paid for the work that I do as a pastor of this church. This is, this is my vocation. This is where I bring food to the table for my family, is, is by the work that I do in preaching the gospel and leading this church. But I think the reason why we have such a strong volunteer culture in this church, such a robust team of people who get their hands on the wall is because we have great examples to follow, don't we? You know, when I, I look at the pastors that I get to work alongside, I see how they work every day with demanding jobs all week long, and yet they still give of their time and their energy and their resources to help pastor this church. And it inspires me to work hard in ministry because of the men that I get to work alongside. And we, we have many great examples in this church, as many of you guys work hard and tirelessly all week long, and you still, like I said, give of your time and your energy and your resources to advance the cause of Christ and the gospel in this church. So if there's anything that for sure we agree on as elders of this church, and maybe you would agree with us, there's nothing that makes us go more bonkers is when people do not have a good work ethic. 
when people are idle and lazy and they don't lift a hand to help for any good work that, you know, should be done and must be done to live properly in this world and to see God's kingdom grow. And so Paul was serious about this issue, you guys. In fact, he said, distance yourself from idle believers. This is kind of intense, isn't it? Because believers should know better. Paul said the same thing about sexually immoral believers. He's not talking about distancing yourself from idle or sexually immoral people of this world, people who are not Christians, because you'll have to leave the world to do that, right? But if someone is calling themselves a Christian, but they're continually and actively living idle lives or continually and active living sexually immoral lives, and they're not wanting to change, in fact, they might be proud about it, they plan to continue in it, we're told to disassociate from them, to keep away from them, to distance yourself from such people. We're not talking about someone who's, you know, out of work for a season and trying to get another job. That's not what Paul's talking about. We're not talking about someone who is physically unable to work. It, it doesn't say someone who, who can't work. It's saying someone who won't work. You're able to, but you won't. You, you're refusing to. So we need to be reasonable, and we need to think about the people that Paul is referring to. He's not making a blanket statement here. He's talking about people who say that they're Christians, and yet they refuse to work because they are unwilling, and they think it's the right thing to do, and they're idle busybodies. He says, keep away from them so that you will not enable them, And by doing so, hopefully they'll see their need for their work. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul says something very blunt. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Isn't hunger a great motivator? I'm not a very good person to be around when I'm hungry. Ask my wife. You know, being hangry, (laughs) I've got that. That's something I'm being sanctified with. Um, You know, I know that if I want to eat, I have to work. And, And with the food that I, or with the work that I do, I make money. And with that money, I go to Trader Joe's or Costco when I buy food. Costco, man, that place can really hit you with a big bill. Um, but you know, I, with that food, I feed myself and I feed my family. And, and, and sometimes we help other people who are in need of a meal because they cannot work or they cannot make money for a certain reason. But uh, we're told that if there's a brother in Christ who, or a sister in Christ who we know is able to work and yet they're not willing to, we're told not to support them, but to keep away from them. And hopefully when they don't have food to eat, and they're feeling those hunger pangs, they'll realize, I should go get a job. I, I need to go work. Now, now listen, compassion goes a long way, doesn't it? And it should. It, this requires good discernment. Compassion goes a long way. Jesus could multiply bread for thousands. And we should think about those things. But, but look, Paul instructed Timothy in his letter to him that young widows should not be included in the food distribution that was happening in the early church because he knew that if they had the ability to remarry 
and have children and manage households, which we know is work, right? He knew that if the church financially supported able-bodied people who could work for themselves, then these people would learn to be idlers. And in their idleness, they would turn into gossips and busybodies. They'd go from house to house. Did you, did you hear what such and such said? Did you hear? And it's usually like masked in, oh, prayer request or something like that. This, this busybody of buzzing all over the place, meddling in other people's business because they've got time on their hands and they're idle when they should be working. They should be doing the things that God has called them to do. And yet they are sowing discord in the church because of their busybodiness when they should be busy about their work. And so Paul says, distance yourself from those people. And the goal is always for repentance and restoration. You know, we're not to keep the idol away for a long time because, you know, hungry people always come back to the table, don't they? Hungry people will always come back to the table, but it's in hopes that the next time they come to the table, they'll bring something that they worked for. And in verse 12, Paul knew that these people who were idle would be hearing this instruction and that hopefully they would quickly decide to get to work. In verse 12, he says this, Now such people we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so if this happens to be speaking to you today, in the Lord Jesus Christ, get to work. If you have time on your hands and, and you need something to kind of get you started, or, or if you need some counsel to just grow in, in work ethic and get a counsel for how to get a job or how to keep a job, the church is here to help you. The church is here to help you, and, and we'll learn the tools together so that we can all work quietly and earn our own livings and see the Lord flourish in his body. Amen? Amen. Now, Paul hasn't forgotten about all the brothers and sisters in Christ who are working, and that's probably many of you here. This is one of those messages where you might be like, this does not apply to me, right? Because you are working. But verse 13 through 15, there's an encouragement for you too. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul says, for those who do work hard with their hands, those who are leading a quiet life, good work can be hard, especially in this obstacle course of a world that we live in, right? But we're not to grow weary in doing good. So may God give us all the strength and the endurance to keep doing good work and not grow away. The world needs it. The church needs it. And guess what? Your own soul needs it. Good work is good for the soul. And so for you who are working, if you know of a believer who does not obey the instruction of 2 Thessalonians 3, you're the one to help them. Take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. It's not often that we're told in the Word of God to make somebody feel ashamed. And there's a right way to view this because it's for a season. The shame that Paul is speaking about is not a shame 
that leads to condemnation. It's a shame that leads to sorrow for sin, which leads to repentance. And so Paul says, be careful. Don't, don't regard a sinning brother or sister in Christ as an enemy, but admonish them, warn them, make a note, put a mark on that person, keep away from that person for a season, and when you see them coming back to Christ because of their hunger, or because of their realization that, that, that they miss being around the body of Christ. You know, to put somebody out of the church, do you realize why that's effective? It's because the church is supposed to be the best place you can possibly be. That, that if you were put out of this fellowship, you would miss it so much that you'd be like, I gotta repent. And the church today has not really done this. I personally have not always learned this lesson and done this right, but, but these are important truths that I hope as a church we would learn and that I hope we wouldn't have to practice very much here. But if we have to, we will, because these are not my words. These are not even Paul's words. These are God's words, and we're called to follow and obey them. Amen. Let's all stand up together. A big book that we just went through, 2 Thessalonians. Together, 1 and 2 Thessalonians has been such an amazing book as we await for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? We know what we're to do today. We're to work with our hands, especially in the work that is done by spreading the gospel of Jesus. And to lead a quiet life and to let our works be seen and honored by God. And so I'm going to end our time together with this final benediction that Paul gives in this letter at verse 16 through 18. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness of every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You guys remember how there had been some fake letters that were sent to the church saying that they were from the Apostle Paul? It's like, throw out those fake letters. You've got the authority of the Word of God. And Paul says, I signed them. This, this is my writing. This is the genuineness of my own hand. And you have heard the genuineness of the word of God. And in all genuine faith, I've declared it to you today in the best way that I know how. And, and, and yet I realize that I need to pray right now. And I need to pray that the Holy Spirit would take his word that you've heard today and that it would fall upon good soil and that it would produce fruit in your life. And so let me pray over you, church. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this body. God, I thank you that this body is not to be busy bodies, but this is to be a working body, a family that is working together and praying together and, and, and growing together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray over this church, Lord of peace, give your peace at all times in every way. Lord, be with us all, this church. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all, both now and forever. And God, we thank you that what we've heard today, as James, the next book we'll go through, would say, we're not to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Let us do it, Lord. 
with your strength and with your power, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. We're going to close in a final song. And if you need prayer, if you need counsel, you need wisdom, we're going to have our pastors and leaders up here at the front to pray for you. Love you guys.